Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am the host, David Rothkopf, and I'm coming to you from New York City. Also joining from New York City, we have our friend, Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, commentator for MSNBC. I'm going to say that a lot in the next couple of seconds because everybody here is a commentator for MSNBC. <laughs> How are you, Lori? I'm good. Hi. Uh, we are also joined from, I don't know where you are, Lena, Lena, Dr. Lena Wen. Uh, are you in Baltimore? Where are you? I'm in Baltimore. To, who is in Baltimore? She was the former uh, health commissioner of Baltimore. She is a, a doctor. She teaches um, and is also a commentator for MSNBC. And we're joined from, I'm guessing, in Washington, D.C., someplace, Dr. Kavita Patel, who is a practicing physician who was a senior advisor on health issues in the Obama White House. Hi, Kavita. Hi, David. Hi, everyone. Uh, so, well, you know, I, I noticed that when I turn on the TV these days, it's not all COVID, COVID, COVID. We've got a Bolton book. Matt Getz has a child, apparently. No one knew about this. We, You know, people seem to be a little bit tired of the COVID story, and yet we have projections coming out this week um, that say that perhaps as many um, as 200,000 people in the United States could be uh, reported dead by, say, October 1st. Um, uh, We just passed uh, today, according to one count, 120,000 in the U.S. Uh, You know, it wasn't that long ago that Donald Trump was saying the total death toll of this would be 60,000, which is what's projected, you know, more, more than that is projected between now um, and, oct- on o- and October 1st. So it doesn't seem like this is going away. Uh, it's not even slowing down that much. Um, it's really dangerous that the country seems to be bored with it, isn't it, Lori? Well, it's horrible <laughs> that the country seems to be bored with it. You know, the most common question I'm sure my colleagues here have the same experience that we receive is when is the second wave coming to which I say we're in wave one and it's having micro wavelets in different parts of the country. uh, And there's no sign that wave one is waning. It's a steady state of growth, maybe even uh, a slightly elevated state of growth with huge increases in certain parts of the country, even as a place like New York that's sacrificed mightily since March is coming out of lockdown, uh, places that never fully went into lockdown are having skyrocketing increases in their uh, incidence uh, of this disease. So I'm uh, actually deeply concerned. I think we're in um, extended wave one and that we could actually have a sort of blurred experience where 
wave two, meaning some kind of a late fall reintroduction of virus, starts to occur, even as wave one is still in parts of the country, still, still going on. Um, and if you look around the world today, you're seeing country after country experiencing a second or a resurge of the first. Um, and in particular, China is right now struggling with a serious situation in Beijing. Lena, how does that square with your view of this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of discussion right now about this first wave versus second wave. And actually, I don't, I think it's a matter of semantics. I don't really think it matters because at the end of the day, we need to be looking at what's happening to infections. And there's also this talk now about, well, maybe we're seeing more cases because of increased testing. Well, that may be, except for two things. One is that the purpose of increased testing is actually to bring down, to contain COVID-19. You should be doing more testing in order to also do more contact tracing, also do more isolation, eventually to, to contain COVID-19. That's what other countries have been able to successfully do. When you look at the peak in other countries, they actually did have waves in multiple European countries and Asian countries. They, you do see a peak and then you see a decline because they were able to contain it with sufficient widespread testing. They didn't see this peak and the plateau, which is kind of what we're seeing in this country. But the other thing, too, is that, um, is that we're not just seeing increased cases, we're also seeing increased hospitalizations. And in multiple states around the country, we're seeing very concerning signs, which is that we are seeing ICUs being full, we're seeing ventilators starting to run out, we're basically seeing what we faced in New York City back in March, which is the beginning of this exponential spread except this time around, there is not going to be the political will or the public energy because of the complacency um, and quarantine fatigue that so many people are facing. But where there's not going to be that will to go through that lockdown, the, 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 shut, the shelter in place once again. And I'm afraid as a result of that, we are going to see many more lives being lost. Well, I saw you say something uh, earlier today um, on uh, Twitter, I, I think. But you were saying that something like one in five hospitalizations in Texas is somebody young, right? It's not, it's not you know, this, there, there are all sorts of, you know, sort of shorthand analyses out there that are just wrong. And one of them is this doesn't affect young people, right? I mean, and that's... Right. I mean, I, I do think it's important for, um, for us to, um, to talk about this. And actually, I had, interestingly, some pushback on Twitter when I posted this. I, I posted what I was seeing um, and what others have noted to be various statistics coming out of different Texas counties um, that, the, um, that in some counties, 50% of infections are among young people in their 20s, that hospitalizations, one out of every five people in hospitals in some counties are people who are in their 20s and 30s. I mean, these are just really surprising numbers. Interestingly, I got some pushback from public health experts saying, well, don't shame young people. And that's not what I was trying to do. I was trying to say that we are all susceptible, that we should all keep our guard up that public education is important. We need to put out the message. It's true that young people are susceptible, that young people can get very sick and die. And frankly, in the absence of federal action, we as individuals have to take matters into our own hands, that there are things that we can do to protect ourselves and others around us. Just, I just just to if, I, if I may, just to add to that, yeah. 
Harris County, Texas, is actually seeing that the sort of mean age of new cases has dropped well below 40. And we have a case that's just been reported out of Florida where 16 girlfriends went to a bar together and every single one of them got infected, as did two bartenders and several other patrons of the bar. This was in Florida. Uh, and they were all in their 20s. So, no, this is hogwash, the idea that, that there's an age restriction. And I'm sorry that you faced blowback from Twitter crowd. <laughs> yeah, no, well, one of the reasons I brought it reasons, up was I... one of the I, reasons David's the only person who can, uh, who can be on Twitter for the length of time that he can because he's got the fortitude. I, I want to pile on because huh. Texas is my home state. I don't know if you saw today that 12 of the members of the Texas college football team, the Longhorns, my, my alma mater also tested positive <laughs> and they had just returned on campus for a two week training, June 14th. So it's just a very, I mean, it's, it's an incredible, and then on the ground, unfortunately, what people are not able to report on kind of accurately, it's not just the hospitalizations, they still are using incredibly arcane criteria for testing. So many people under the, most pediatrics clinics are not unlike DC or New York or California, well, most parts of the country where you can now just walk up and get a test. They are still using pretty restrictive criteria such that it is actually incredibly hard to get a test. You basically have to kind of say, yeah, I think I'm about to, you know, I have a fever and I think I have COVID and then they're able to do that. And that's largely because they're still, um, even with despite dis decent local public health people, like in Houston and in other places, there are still these like bizarre doctor-centric forces. These are doctors who do not believe it's as bad as we think it is. And they just don't want to kind of promote the notion that this is a pandemic, which is even, like mind-blowing. And then you compare that to Montgomery, Alabama, where you had doctors showing up to protest a 4-4 city council vote to ban wearing masks. And the doctors were like giving these compelling stories about their patients who happened to primarily be black in the ICU. And that was almost a tacit approval for the city council to be like, ah, oh, it's not that important. It's just people who are dying and they happen to be black. Okay. And, and they voted down an ordinance to wear masks, which is, I mean, I just don't even, you know, I throw up my hands. I don't know. You, you can't tweet that away. You can't figure out, I mean, I don't know how you, if we have doctors on one side who are speaking science and truth and nobody listens, and then you have doctors who will not process science and truth, that's a setup for a total disaster. Forget a second wave. I mean, we're just Kavita, you know what, you know what that reminds me of is what we went through in the early days of HIV. Yes. Because it was physicians that did some of the most reactionary things. Yep. You know, when um, yes. John Aker, the dentist yes. in Florida, who uh, died of AIDS and before that passed it on to some of his dental patients. Well, it was the um, Orthopedic Surgeons Society, whatever. Yeah. American yeah. College of Orthopedics, is that what it's called? And they came forward and said, well, then we want total space suits. Mm -hmm. We won't operate on anybody with HIV um, or any gay man. That's what it was because we didn't have a good test then. We won't good. operate on any gay right. man unless we can prove that he doesn't have HIV. And if he does, we can deny him surgery. And, and uh, Abraham Vergaze writes about this beautifully in El Paso, in my own country. I mean, he was he became this rightfully famous figure 
because he was the only doctor in, I think, Tennessee and then Texas that agreed to actually take care of these patients when other doctors wouldn't even allow for them to make grid and then early HIV allow for them to make appointments. So you're, you're right. And I, I hesitate sometimes in audiences to make that leap because you hear you have then the Trump administration gaslighting communities of color, prisoners, nursing homes. They're like, well, it's all, you know, to Lena's tweet, like it is important to cast sunlight on the fact that it's young, healthy people going into hospitals too, because if you listen to some of our friends in the White House, they make it sound like, well, well, it was all, it was prisoners, Native Americans, Black people in nursing homes. That's, I mean, that's really all the people getting COVID. Well, that, I mean, that's, there's a kind of a um, political susceptibility to the virus out there. And the places that it is going now um, are places where political leaders have made their reputation by saying, we're not going to let this get us. We're going to open up. Who needs to wear a mask and so forth? And we've also seen in some cases, Florida comes to mind, uh, but I suspect in other cases where people are fiddling with the numbers. Uh, and so these places have a greater liability. And frankly, Lena, when I saw you get a little bit of pushback um, I, to the comment that you, you made, I thought this is wrong. You, we have got to try to get the word into these places because the cost is going to be very high. I mean, after all, it looks right now like more people will die of COVID between now and the end of the year than have already died. In other words, we're, 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 you know, we haven't seen anything like the peak of this thing. Do you think American politics is, gonna, is killing people, Lena? Well, let me back up for for um, for a minute. I'm sure that um, Lori and Kavita have something to say about this topic as well. But um, you know, I, I want to back up and just talk about this individual versus collective responsibility issue, because I think that we have to talk about it all, right? We have to talk about the role of the federal government and, frankly, the lack of national leadership um, all along the way. And in fact, it's I mean, we've we've seen total abdication at this point of having something even approaching a national strategy for testing, contact tracing, isolation, treatment, procuring supplies. We've seen state and local officials really have to step up. Although we've also seen, unfortunately, um, many, um, many officials on all levels not listening to public health experts and even public health experts themselves having death threats and protests because they're trying to give scientific advice. I mean, all of this is really a problem. I also think that there is a real element, too, of personal responsibility. Um, at this point, we know that we're not going to have a vaccine for some time, a year, a year and a half, maybe significantly longer. And we cannot be hermits. I fully recognize this. We're not all going to be staying in our home and sheltering in place for that period of time. So people are going to have some element of risk. But I think that we also need to acknowledge that we have the power to reduce our risk. We can choose to not go to crowded indoor bars. We can choose to have socially distanced get together with our loved ones. We can choose to, for those of us who have to go to work to try to reduce our risk while at work. And I do think that there's some element of, of individual responsibility that we need to bear. And I think in particular, because our federal government has been not, not nearly as responsive as they need to be, that's left even more of the onus on individuals to protect ourselves and our loved ones. 
If you like Deep State Radio, you should listen to Deep Dish on Global Affairs, a foreign policy podcast that goes beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Each episode features new experts explaining current events, from Chinese aggression in the South China Sea to Bolsonaro's political pressure on Brazil's democracy. Deep Dish examines what's happening, why it matters, and what you should watch for as the stories unfold. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. If, if I may, uh, bouncing off of very wise comments, um, a couple things come to mind. I mean, I'm actually quite ner- anxious uh, about what's going to happen as the first stimulus package with unemployment money behind it begins to run out. Uh, and the really extraordinary economic pain starts to slam down as people have run out of savings, they've run out of fallback positions, relatives to borrow money from, and so on. Um, Just today, I was sitting in the uh, uh, Economist Intelligence Unit report, and they're predicting that uh, the entire global economy by the end of the year will have had a negative GDP growth of nearly 5%. OECD says 5.2%. They're predicting that the United States will have a negative GDP position of negative 4.78%. OECD says 5.2%. Any way you look at it, it's going to be phenomenal pain. And many sectors, uh, forecasters from IMF, World Bank, OECD, the EIU, they're all saying, we're looking out at 2026 as a possible target date for restoring the global economy to its November 2019 position. In other words, we're going to have a situation where we just can't keep going further and further in debt, trillions and trillions and trillions of debt, to throw money at the problem in order to keep the Wall Street artificially popping and uh, subsidize uh, stimulus for businesses and unemployment at some point. We just can't go any further in debt. And at some point, the pain is going to become so severe. I mean, Trump's willing to spend anything between now and Election Day. What happens the day after? Uh, Similarly, as uh, this amazing confluence that none of us could have specifically anticipated of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd murder with COVID has occurred, uh, two, two things are concerning for me. One is our, our mayor here in New York, de Blasio, issued an edict three days ago saying absolutely no contact tracer is allowed to ask people if they attended demonstrations and protests. So we will never know in New York whether or not being maskless or around maskless people um, or being arrested and thrown in a paddy wagon and then thrown in a crowded jail cell might have caused an individual of 24 to acquire COVID. Uh, the mayor has ruled that illegal to ask. Uh, that, to me, is just the flip side of Trump saying, if we don't test, we don't have more cases, so let's just stop testing. It's the same kind of idiocy, left-wing or right-wing. I don't care. It's dumb, and it's bad public health. And what if I just take one more worry and add it to the pot, and then I'm dying to see what my colleagues here will say, um, is that uh, I'm very, very worried as the army of contact tracers is being rapidly hired all over the United States, most of whom are, are basically amateurs coming to the, the task. 
they're being hired not out of, for the most part, sophisticated training or medical background. They might be first-year public health students or uh, college kids or whatever they're grabbing from. I'm very worried because I see online chatter in right-wing sites about shooting contact tracers, about don't let these fill in the blank of obscenities walk on your front stoop. Don't let them ask you questions. And don't you dare tell them that you ever went to a Trump rally. And, if, and I just feel like terrified that we're going to have a situation that's classic Americana where an African-American contact tracer is attempting to knock on the door of a white gun-toting Texan. You know, fill in the blanks and imagine your scenario. And so I'm, 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 I'm really quite concerned about how this is going to play out over the next two to three weeks. Well, we have a Texan who was also a contact tracer here mm -hmm. uh, at some point, because I recall deep in your past there, Kavita. What, what's your reaction to that? <laughs> I know. I'd like, I'd like to say there are some non-gun-toting Texans around, but I know where Lori's going. I get, I get exactly what she's saying. And I would say it's even more concerning if you're following what's happening in South Dakota with the Sioux Nation tribe, where they have actually put into place what I would say, they call it checkpoints, and, and uh, that's their label but they put into place kind of their, because of the impact of tribal nations and the sovereignty that tribal nations have. Um, in South Dakota, the tribe put in contact tracing and because the governor there, Governor Noemi, who's a big Trump supporter and also um, wants to hold, you know, Donald Trump's already said he would love to hold a rally in front of Mount Rushmore, fireworks and the whole thing. Um, the South Dakota, they, they are trying to strong arm the contact tracing program to stand down because it is a checkpoint program run by community people. Nope, not checkpoints like at the border with guns or badges, but it's community workers, to Lori's point, people looking like the community, tribal members, asking questions to record and document who's coming and going on grounds because that's one of their only ways to contact trace. And you're already seeing, not from crazy people uh, toting guns, but from the actual state government supported by the Secretary and Bureau of Interior of the Federal Department of Interior, the federal government doing what Lori is describing, which are kind of fear mongering and tactics to shut it down. So. I agree with her. And by the way, I would go even a level above. You saw Dr. Nicole Quick, who's the Orange County Public Health Director. She's already been very vocal about the death threats that she has. A very close friend of mine was offered the job, not the person who has the interim job, who was her number two, but a close friend of mine from UCLA was offered that job. And part of the hiring package, which he turned down, was that they would provide 24-7 security and bulletproof vests. So you already had, it's not hypothetical what Lori is describing. It's real. And all because you had a public health director with a background like the three of ours, who basically said in public spaces, you should wear masks. Now the governor of California has already kind of preempted it and said, now it's done at the state level. But Lori's right. Like, what is this? And in, in, in the worlds of contact tracing, racism, kind of, you know, we have a president who will do, I think, do anything to hijack this election. It's a tinderbox. I mean, it is a, just like that Coliseum where they're holding a rally on Saturday, this is a tinderbox. <laughs> I don't know when it'll, you know, go up in flames, but it will at some well, point. 
Lena, you're oh, and uh, you are, add, Let me add one other thing. Do, you know, the, uh, I've, I've tweeted queries about this. I haven't had any answers yet. But, you know, everybody going into that rally in Tulsa, it has to sign an agreement yeah. saying, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm indemnifying the, the organizers. Yeah. They don't, yeah. I can't sue them and so on. Will the reporters sign that? I, asked I don't, I don't think any journalist should sign such a thing. So I actually asked that out of the MSNBC, I, the field reporters who were going to cover it Saturday. I asked them, and it's so funny you asked that because they weren't, first of all, they hadn't been offered. Nobody has yet been kind of forced to sign it because they haven't kind of, I guess if you've pre-registered, they will. And the folks with media badges have a space that they can go through. But they, I think they're not sure what they're going to do because they feel like they want to be inside to cover the rally. But I said, I don't think you can go in unless you sign it, right? Like, and, and I think that they In are theory, they haven't, they haven't specifically said reporters have to sign it. But and that's what no I self-respecting journalist right. And that's what I said. It. I mean, I even said the same thing. I said, I don't know. I hate to be rude, but I think you should just cover it from the outside and see who goes in and out. <laughs> I don't think you should go inside. <laughs> I said the same thing. I was like, do it at your own but, caution. You know? Lena, as a, as a former public health official um, who's you know dealt with these kind of issues, what do you think of this discussion about this tinderbox for public health profession? Yeah, I, I really worry about it. Um, public health depends on public trust. We can't do our jobs if the public doesn't trust us. And I really worry when our political leaders are fueling this level of, of mistrust. Um, I mean, I, it already is mind-blowing that something like a mask has become a partisan symbol, when in fact it should be literally what it is, which is it protects you from getting COVID-19, it protects others from getting COVID-19. I mean, it should just be a public health tool. Um, but of course, I, I worry about um, the examples that Lori and, and Kavita gave. Um, I worry about what that means right now for coronavirus, but also what that portends for the future too. Because it's not only COVID-19 that we have contact tracers. We have contact tracers. I mean, quite frankly, contact tracers, the bread and butter of local pub public health. Um, people contact all the time if there are outbreaks of, of tuberculosis, um, outbreaks of meningitis and Legionnaire's disease. You know, that's, this is just what happens every day in, in communities around the country. Um, and if there is now no trust in local public health and their ability to do their jobs, then how can we protect against infectious illnesses in the future? How, and one of the problems here is the persistence of this crisis and the attention span of people. I mean, I, the president has an attention span of Nat, you know, it's 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 measured in in seconds. But frankly, you know, you guys every day are dealing with the news media, and the news media doesn't have very long attention span either. And yet, what we're talking about here is managing a problem that will certainly be a challenge for the next six months. Oh, Maybe a challenge yeah. for the net. Well, I, I'm you know, I'm six months. That. What planet but, but, are you on? Well, we're, I'm just, we're looking at years. Well, I, mean, I, I, really, I get it. the event and, horizon is years. Well, then that's what I was getting at. I think, in all likelihood, you know, we're we're facing something that is going to be a problem for many years. If people aren't able to stay alert, it gets worse. 
How do you do that? How do you convey that, Lori? How do you? Uh, David, I, I'm, I'm going to take you a step back and say, recall the economic figures I started putting out. Try to imagine what happens when entire sectors of the economy do not come back. I don't think hotels are coming back anytime soon. Airlines aren't coming back. Uh, most restaurants aren't coming back. Entire sectors of the, uh, the world economy are going to be in a state of comatose, if not death, uh, very shortly and stay there. So we're going to be looking at tensions rising, the kind of social tensions we've already been talking about, which are classic American racial tensions, are mirrored all over the planet now based on other political and economic factors in different cultures. And, you know, fill in the blank. Who do you take your anger out against? Depends on your culture and your religion, and you just pick a target. This is all only going to get worse as country after country, especially our own, is unable to continue to do bailout packages or to agree on them. And the closer we get to the elections, the harder it's going to be to reach agreement. If you want an eye-opener, take a look at the lines that have been forming um, in Lexington, Kentucky for the last four days in a row. Every day, the line is about two miles long in the heat. People get in the queue at four in the morning for unemployment benefits. That's Mitch McConnell's home state. And it is unbelievable tidal wave of unemployment. Um, will Mitch get reelected? Right now, he's ahead in the polls. But I think the closer we get to the elections and the level of desperation in the public about money, about paying the bills, about feeding the kids, rises coincident with rising anxiety among Republicans about getting unseated, about losing this election, about America saying enough already. I mean, the polls are already showing Biden ahead by 16 points. And in one election after another, the Senate is looking like it could flip. And most of the uh, meetings I've been in with so-called experts on politics, like yourself, David, are telling me, look, this is, a, this is a blue tsunami year coming up. If that's true, I think as desperation rises, we get into October, we've had 200,000 plus dead Americans. We have massive unemployment unhealed and only getting worse. The bailout packages are running out. Well, then we could very well see some desperate measures taken uh, to try and salvage Republican positions. And I'm not talking about good things. I'm talking about fueling the very people that are putting word out that you have to, you know, take your gun to contact tracers or you have to, uh, you know, beat up uh, pussies that wear, uh, you know, weaklings that wear masks and things like that. I think it's going to get very dangerous in America. I, you know, Lena, as I think about that, you know, it comes back to this sort of core false choice that we've been presented with. Uh, because among the bad things, it might not be, you know, taking a gun to a contact tracer. It might just be, look, the economy's in lousy shape. You've got to get out and work. We're going to open it up more. You know, we just got to suck it up and take the hit. And, you know, it's a couple of points of the population, but it doesn't matter. We've got to get back to work. The majority of the country's out of work. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the four of us, if we had the conversation, would say, well, the true economic solution is the health solution. First, you solve the health problem, then you get to the economic problem. Uh, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be made in the U.S. Do you think it's going to be made someplace else and those places will be able to be held up as an example? 
Yeah, that's an interesting point. I do actually think that this is also at the bottom of um, some of these attacks on public health officials because people are seeing them as the foil, right? They're seeing them as, well, you're the reason that I have lost my job. You're the reason why my business is closed and I'm going bankrupt because you are scaring people, you're fear-mongering, you're not letting people work, right? That, that seems to be that dichotomy of trying to literally pit public health versus the economy versus, as you said, I am quite certain that all of us here would agree that it's quite the opposite, that public health containing the virus, that's key to getting the economy back. And in fact, this is exactly what we've seen happen in all these other countries that have been able to contain COVID-19. That key to, for example, getting patients to feel comfortable going back to getting elective surgeries and getting their teeth cleaned and therefore stabilizing hospitals and dental practices has been keeping the borrow low down so that people aren't terrified that if they go get their teeth cleaned or get their gallbladder out that they're going to die from COVID-19. Um, key to getting people to feel safe to go back into retail settings and to go back to school and to universities also is ensuring that they don't feel terrified that they're going to become affected. And even if they don't get very sick, they're going to come back and infect loved ones who are elderly or have chronic um, issues. And so I think we have plenty of examples from other countries of how public health is the roadmap to getting our economy back on track. But I think that right now in this country, there is this pernicious narrative that's there. And I think that by having public health as a foil, it is a way to distract from, frankly, the lack of um, a national strategy to be able to say, well, we're not the problem. It's those people. And that is extremely dangerous because, again, it is, this is what's going to lead to preventable deaths and it's going to lead to a distrust in the entire institution that could have effects for generations to come. Can I ask you something, Lena? Have you felt in Baltimore uh, that you are subjected to any added attack by virtue of being Asian? By virtue of being Asian, interesting. Um, you know, not in Baltimore, face-to-face, um, -face. certainly on Twitter. There have been plenty of people who have made comments, and I don't know who the, they are, right? They're Twitter trolls. I mean, I have no idea. Um, bots, I don't know these things, but plenty of people who have, every time I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I talk about an issue, basically, that's related to COVID, somebody will, will tweet and say something about the quote-unquote Wuhan virus, or, you know, who are you to speak when you brought this virus to the country, something like that. Um, and I mean, I think that, you know, this, this is what happens when we use stigmatizing language, um, instead of what's recommended, um, for terminology by the World Health Organization and others. Well, let me, let me ask, Kavita, you've worked in a White House, which is always a, a, a politicized setting. You know, when I think back on the crisis that, that, we had in 2007 and 2008, whatever one may think of the Bush administration, one of the things that helped the United States the most was that the Bush team and the incoming Obama team worked together to manage together the crisis. Obama was brought in to talk, you know, early on uh, with, with, with the Bush team uh, there was very close coordination. Uh, and the United States recovered from that crisis faster than a lot of other countries as a result. Now, now we're heavily divided. 
But at some point, potentially in just a few months, uh, a democratic regime might take over. Is there something a Biden campaign can do now that can help set the stage for, you know, a, a different approach to this, uh, an acceleration of recovery, something sensible that can happen sooner? Or is this just all going to have to wait till January 22nd to get started? No, I think, I think that, I, well, first of all, um, you know, you can only imagine the economic powerhouses that are helping Biden kind of think through this. Everybody from, you know, Peter Orzak, Larry Summers, Gene Sperling, you know, insert name of smart econ guy here, former Federal Reserve chairs, Janet Yellen. Like, I mean, there's, there's just Ben Bernanke. The list goes on and on and on. And I was trying to remember when Lori talked about the GDP. I believe our GDP contracted. So I actually had to work on like the bailout when I first started because that's all we did from day one, which is not my strength, but we all had to do it. The GDP contracted about 4% kind of around 2007 to 2009. So, you know, think about, and I, so I think this is obviously worse. And it never went negative. No, it never, no, no, no. It can, I'm talking. It went, to, it went down to like one right. point something. Right. right. I'm just talking about the contraction, which is a big yeah. deal just from the, we thought that was the worst it would ever be is my point because we thought that recession and what we what we had to do to kind of orchestrate and continue the bush auto bailout and all of that to your point david continuity in government is not going to happen if we do see a change in administration so the tools at biden's disposal um, which obviously he's like pulling right now are the kind of expertise and wheelhouse from kind of formers but also being able, we, we do have a, a democratic house with a dysfunctional Senate, but laying down those table stakes now so that if we do flip the Senate and you can go from day one to introduce HR1 and just have it boom, 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 that's the way, that's kind of what all he can do. One thing that is happening, I can say, is, uh, is that the Biden people, we've seen now something that's different when Obama started with a lot of kind of, and I, I forget the number in the first you know, term, the first year of Obama's presidency, I, I'm gonna make this number up and get it wrong. We had a certain number of executive orders, which was far more than many other administrations had had. Well, Trump has burned through that in a much shorter time frame, And I think any Biden administration White House will feel much more comfortable with signing EOs and letting courts duke it out later, but signing executive orders. So I do think, David, that there is going to be a significant problem with continuity of government and a smooth transition, which a lot of people don't think and realize how important that is. But you're right. It was seamless and so much so that um, the Bush officials in the last months, while the, after the election, during the transition, were incredibly kind of close-handed in working through the um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act and some of the things that passed before Inauguration Day. So I think that you are not, you've seen how this president works with Congress or does not work with Congress. You're not gonna have any of that. And so you'll have to rely on EOs and you'll have to rely on this hypothesis that you can flip the Senate and just go from day one. I will say that'll come at a cost to this, uh, the Democratic Party in the midterms. I mean, it's like, a, I can predict it. You know, we'll see a 2022 swing in midterms because that's what happens. But you've got two years to do something. And it's, you know, an, is it enough time? I don't know. That bailout, that work just for a 
recession, which was nowhere near as dramatic as what we're seeing now. And that took, I mean, that was actually why health reform took longer and potentially got completely displaced, if you'll recall. Um, and I, so that's why it's going to be hard to see how this, any new administration, a Biden administration can do anything other than just try to help us recover. And that's it. I, 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 we're, we're just we're just running out of time here. And I know Lena's got to go. So if I could just go to her very quickly. Do you have anything to follow up with that as a suggestion for what might happen next from a, uh, from a Biden campaign or 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 our governor is going to have to pick up the slack in the interim. What's your, what's your view before you've got to go? And then go if you've got to go. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do think that this is what we've seen happen, um, that we have seen a state and local officials really step up and um, who have taken um, hard stances and have done difficult things um, um, where they often had to stand alone and wait for everybody else to catch up. So I do think that they've um, they really stuck their necks out, a lot of them, and have done great things. Um, but this is not sustainable. And I'm really concerned about what happens, I don't know if you call it a second wave or, or whatever it is, but if there is another surge in cases. The first time we were not prepared and maybe one could say, well, hindsight is twenty twenty, and maybe there's nothing that we could have done to prepare for it, which is not true, but one could still maybe find that somewhat excusable because this is a new disease, a pandemic that we haven't seen in our generation. Well, we have no more excuses. If we see a surge, whether it's coming up soon or in the fall with a double whammy of the flu and COVID-19, we really have no excuses for why we run out of PPE, why we don't have enough testing. And I just, I, I fear that something like that will happen because of the complacency and the misinformation that's out there. So I'm sorry to end my part on such, an, on such a pessimistic note, but I think this is why the voices of, of you, David, but also Kavita and Lori and so many others are so important at this time. And, and you too, Lena. So we will see you back here soon. Last word to Lori. Last word to me. Well, I'm a little distressed that I don't actually see a Biden um, strategic plan for conquering COVID. Uh, I see a lot of antipathy towards uh, the mistakes and the errors being made by the Trump administration, correctly so. But I don't see, well, and this is how we would do it. This is day one, we do X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's not enough to just say we need more testing or we need more masks or we need more whatever. You need a strategic plan, and the strategic plan begins with stating what is our goal. And I haven't seen anything from the Biden camp that states what's the strategic goal. Is the strategic goal to just keep as many Americans alive as possible? I mean, that's kind of wussy. Or is it to be engaged in a global effort to eradicate or eliminate the virus? Is it a, is it a long-term strategy that seeks to not let COVID-19 join HIV in the pantheon of new permanent diseases in the human landscape? Or is it something more ambitious or less ambitious? We don't know. And I would... I would feel a lot more optimistic if I had a clear idea of some kind of Democratic Party strategy uh, for conquering the disease that isn't just about being opposed to idiocy from the current White House. Well, I wouldn't say this has been the most uplifting episode of Deep State Radio ever. 
Um, but I, I, I do think it's been one of the most thought-provoking, and I, the three of you are uh, three of the smartest folks I know, and we've been really lucky to have you here throughout this crisis. And all I can say is, listening to you, um, uh, it looks like we will have need of your services for a long, long time to come. Uh, I hope that there are, uh, there are turning points we haven't seen in all of this, but the prognosis looks pretty bleak. Um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Kavita. Um, thank you, Lori. Thank you to everybody for listening. And we will follow this closely, whether it's in fashion with the rest of the media or not, because uh, this is not a crisis that is slowing down, uh, as Lori points out, not um, medically, not economically, not socially. And uh, we are a long way from figuring out what the strategic plan to slow it down is. So we'll work on that. Listen, listen for ideas for that. Follow it closely. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, for following what we are doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, uh, and uh, try to stay healthy. Bye-bye.